time, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John 1, and we'll pick up reading there at verse 35. John 1, 35 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 51. So John 35, John, sorry, 1 verse 35. This is the living and active word of our Lord. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and, seeing them following, said to, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you, will, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So far the reading of God's perfect word. Let's come again before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the beginning of your word and the end of your word and everything in between. We thank you for the depth of your word. We thank you, Father, that you have a word for us this evening, a word of truth. And we ask, God, that you would bless us in hearing that. I ask for your spirit to be upon me as I bring forth your word and your spirit to be upon every one of us, that we would be attentive to it, understanding of it, and that we would be not only hearers, but doers of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me begin by pointing out something that you may have already noticed as we read that, and that's the number of times that reference is made in that passage to either sight or to hearing. For instance, in verse 36, and looking at Jesus, he said, that is John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak. Verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following said, verse 39, come and see. Followed by they came and saw. Verse 40, one of the two who, one of the two who heard. And on and on it goes really throughout the rest of that. Uh, passage and in quite a few of the verses that came before that. But so obviously we don't have the same opportunity living when we do as they did in the days when Jesus walked this earth when it came to 
seeing and hearing him from a physical standpoint. But we do have the blessing of walking by faith rather than by sight, which we might not think to be that much of a blessing at times. We might think it would be a whole lot better if we just could have been there, if we could have seen Jesus physically and touched him and so forth. But according to Jesus' own words in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so there, right? I mean, there we have it. Can't really argue with Jesus and win. And so be blessed. Be thankful that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who allows us to see and to hear and to experience our Lord all the time. Right? I mean, all the time we do. Think of the disciples. Jesus wasn't in their midst 24-7. They could see him sometimes. They could. We, we always can experience and with eyes of faith and so forth um, know our Lord, as it were. So even though I read beginning in verse 35, I'm going to focus our attention just on verses 43 through 51, where we read of two men, Philip and Nathaniel, and also the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Beginning then at verse 43... Jesus determines to leave the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing on the north side of Galilee. And he, we assume with three of his disciples at that point, were on the road to Galilee um, as he was. Somewhere along the way, Jesus found or came upon a man named Philip. And he said to him, follow me. Now, I'm going to pause here for a few minutes and consider a few things about this man named Philip, who was one of Jesus' close inner disciples and an apostle, one of the apostles. And as we begin to do that, please understand here that my desire is not to portray Philip as someone other than he truly was. But at the same time, in looking at what Scripture does say about him, it could be, and please understand, I know you don't even know me, you think, I don't know about this guy. It could be, Right? I'm just I'm going to stress and underline that. It could be that Philip was a person of, of I'll put it gracious, graciously, of limited ability. Another way of putting it is that he might have been out of his element on a number of occasions. As one commentator put it, slow to apprehend truth, Philip missed much. But Jesus had kind words for him anyway. And to help us understand that possibility, turn with me to John 12. John chapter 12, and let's pick up reading there at verse 20. John 20, I'm sorry, John 12, verses 20 and 22, through 22. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Again, I don't want to make too much of this, and yet we are left to wonder why Philip's first response after being asked by the Greeks to go see Jesus was to go and find Andrew. It could have been that Philip simply did not know at that moment where Jesus was, and so all he was doing was figuring, well, I don't know, but Andrew might know. But then again, it could be that Philip was unsure of himself as far as answering the Greeks, and so he needed some help in knowing what to do next. As one commentator I read put it, Philip, in his perplexity, sought out Andrew. All right, now turn with me to John 14. And in this passage, 
Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room, and beginning in verse 6, Jesus tells them this, John 14, beginning at verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you also would have known my, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own, on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, to give Philip some credit, it could very well be that as soon as Philip said what he did there, that all the rest of the disciples were like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Jesus, we're all in agreement with that. Just just show us some sort of theophany like we like our ancestors had in the Old Testament, and then we'll believe. But, but also, again, Philip may have been slightly out of his element. Here's another example, which is debatable, as all these are. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John 6, in this account, uh, Jesus is in Galilee, and after crossing over the Sea of Galilee, there's a multitude besides his disciples that come out to see him, and we assume to listen to him and to hear him teach and to perform some miracles. And so as Jesus saw the multitudes coming to him, he said to Philip in verse 5, John 6, verse 5, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? To which Philip replied in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. All right, but so those that have studied that passage in detail and knew the value of a denarii and, and, and how much bread that would buy in those days have realized that even if there had been 5,000 men plus another 1,000 women and children, 200 denarii would have, in fact, it would have, in fact, fed at least a little to everyone there, if not more. In other words, there's reason to believe that Philip's math skills were somewhat on par with mine which uh, before I was a pastor, I was a PE teacher. And uh, you know what they say about PE teachers, those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, teach PE. But I, I, I did PE because that was the only pass I, class I ever passed when I was growing up. Math and me don't, you know, again, it's limited to say that. To quote Calvin on that, he said, as usually happens with the big crowd, Philip probably overestimated the number. And again, that makes sense. You know, you ask I could ask some of you tonight, how many people were in church tonight? Oh, I'm terrible at that. I, 20? <laughs> and, right, I mean, we just don't get that. And so, yeah, maybe that was it, right? But then again, just maybe Philip was a little slow to apprehend truth. One more example, and then I'll stop bashing this man who probably had intellectual abilities that we'll find out in the new heavens and new earth, which were far superior than Einstein. But anyway, look back at John chapter 1. In verse 45, Jesus had directly come to Philip and told him, follow me, which by the grace of God, Philip did. And then we read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. All right, so, so far, so good, right? Moses and the law certainly did write of Christ and so did the prophets. 
And then he continues by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now think about it. Did Moses ever write about the son of Joseph? Um, Or did the prophets ever write about that or about Jesus of Nazareth? They didn't. And so listen again to these words from Calvin about Philip's words to Nathaniel. Calvin said, Philip can't say four things about Christ without including two stupid mistakes. That was Calvin's words, right? He calls him the son of Joseph and wrongly makes, makes Nazareth his native town. And just so you know, Calvin did have some more commendable things to say about Philip along the way, which I'll read some of in just a minute. But again, that's just another example concerning why it could be, could be, maybe is, maybe isn't, that Philip was, as I've been saying, out of his element, somewhat limited in his intellectual ability. But now, even if that was the case, you might be saying, where are you going with this? You just want to bash some guy. I don't want to do that. But here's the good point of that. Even if that was the case, listen to these words from Calvin about this incident with Philip in John 1, where he said that even though Philip may not have gotten everything right, yet, said Calvin, because he really wants to help, as in help Nathaniel, and make Christ known, God approves his earnestness and makes it successful. Every man indeed needs to keep soberly within his own limits. And John certainly does not mention it as praiseworthy of Philip to dishonor Christ twice, but just relates that his teaching, though faulty and involved in error, was useful because in spite of everything it pursued the aim of making Christ truly known. Philip does not forge a counterfeit Christ, but only wants him to be known as he was propounded by Moses and the prophets. Thus we see that the chief thing in preaching is that those who hear us should somehow or other come to Christ. I can tell you as a pastor, that's a great and comforting point, right? And to all of us, we could say, well, who am I to tell this person? Well, you're probably not all that you think you are, or maybe less, but God can use you, right? And he does as we seek to point others to Christ. And certainly that's what Philip did. Uh, In fact, tradition has it that Philip, as an apostle, later went into what's modern-day Turkey and some of the surrounding areas there where he eventually was crucified and stoned, I assume at the same time, alongside of his daughters, where they were all martyred for their faith in the ancient city of of Phrygia. And so again, Philip was, was a mere man who, after receiving the Lord's gracious and merciful calling, was then used by God. And perhaps he was a man of limited ability, and yet in light of that possibility, God used him. And in light of that, too, um, remember the words from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 7, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Then, too, let's remember, again, that God can and does use all kinds of people, regardless of our ability. That's, again, who he is left with using, right, in some way. Well, now let's take a few minutes and focus our attention on the other man spoken of in our passage, and that's Nathaniel. In verse 46 of John 1, we have Nathaniel responding to Philip's description of Jesus of Nazareth by asking, Can anything good 
come out of that place, out of Nazareth. What led Nathaniel to say that, in part, was the fact that just about all of Galilee looked down upon that little old, unimportant, dusty town of Nazareth as being just that. It just, it just wasn't that important. It just, what's that? Right? I mean, we might say that of Lyman or something. I mean, what goes on in, you know, I don't know, <laughs> not to do that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, too, it might have been, he might have been led to say that because he knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem and not from Nazareth. In response, Philip gave Nathaniel as simple and yet as a resourceful of an answer that he could, which was, again, come and see. Come and see. In other words, you don't believe me? All right. Well, come and see him for yourself, which Nathaniel did. And when he came to Jesus, he was told by the all-knowing Savior, behold, or kind of like, look what we have here. An Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. In other words, no pretense, no hypocrisy. In verse 48, we're told that Nathanael then said to Jesus, well, yes, that is true about me. I mean, I don't like to admit it. I, I don't want to be too proud of my humble, unhypocritical self, but that is truly who I am. I'm never guilty of hypocrisy. <laughs> no, that's not what he said. If he had said that, then he would have what Jesus just said about him would have been untrue, right? But so understand this. When Jesus told Nathanael, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In those words, Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, and therefore as one who, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, searches the heart of man, was saying that he knew. He knew that at some point in the very recent past, Nathanael had been realizing his own unworthiness when it came to be being accepted and loved by God. And if it was opposite than that, you can say, well, you're reading too much into that. Jesus is saying you're not a person of pretense. What's part of our problem? What, what's part of our, what's your problem, Mike? What is it? We like to think too highly of ourselves, right? Romans chapter 1, God, God tells us don't do that. You know why God gives us commands, don't do something? Because he knows that's what we do, right? So don't do that. And again, I, I think I'm not pulling too much out of that, and other commentators weren't either, that, that at some point in the recent past, Nathaniel had been realizing his unworthiness when it came to being accepted or loved by God. Sort of like the publican in Luke 18, who having seen God's grace, or having by God's grace seen himself as he truly was, he prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so it's likely that, that Nathaniel had, while sitting under that fig tree, come to that same point where he found himself to be what? and To be unworthy. Someone who could never merit or deserve to be loved by such a holy and righteous God. We can't say for this for sure, but it could also be that after coming to that point of realization, God had given Nathaniel some word of promise, like that found in Genesis 22.8, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Or Isaiah 51.3, where God tells his people, my righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth. Or maybe Isaiah 55.1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, no merit, nothing in themselves that God will just say, well, that's good enough. Come, buy, eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Again, words like that may have been upon the, the mind of Nathaniel before Philip came and told him, of the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. And then in response, what did Nathaniel really do? He came and he saw. 
and he heard. And what did he hear? He heard the words of omniscient love that only God could give, following which Nathanael said to Jesus, Rabbi, that is, teacher, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Two titles for Christ, which were probably, in Nathanael's mind, the, the most honorable titles that he could give him. As another commentator I read put it, Nathanael capitulated to, in words, he surrendered, he submitted himself to, he yielded obedience to the man who read, understood, and also satisfied even his heart. What a blessed place that is to be. And so Nathanael, too, was a mere man who, by the grace of God, was called to follow Christ, which he also did by the grace of God. And according to, to tradition, Nathanael later traveled to the area around present-day India. He translated the Gospel of Matthew into the native language there before he was very cruelly skinned alive and then crucified and then beheaded. But now let me ask, does that mean that for him and for Nathanael, for Philip or even for Peter or any of the other apostles who were martyrs of the faith or any of the martyrs of the faith, does that mean that God let them down or that God failed them in the moment of their greatest trial? Not at all. In fact, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's said about Andrew that as he was being led to his own cross where he was crucified, he said, O cross, most welcomed and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously I come to thee. Because I have always been thy lover and have coveted to embrace thee. You know why he could say that and mean it? Because he longed to be with his Savior. He longed to be with his God. Because he had come to realize that the cross that saints are called to bear is wrapped up in the cross of Christ. Where there's everlasting life on the other side. Well, so we've looked at two mere men. Let's spend just a few minutes looking at the Son of Man. And in doing that, look again at what we read in verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon <clears throat> the Son of Man. Greater things than these. In those few words, it's as, though, it's as though Jesus was telling Nathaniel, your belief at this point, your belief at this point rests upon my omniscient gaze that has penetrated your heart. And that's good, because there should be belief associated with that. But you will soon be seeing that it's not just your heart that I'm able to perceive. I'm able to perceive the heart of all mankind. And that you'll soon be seeing this greater thing I think it has to do with Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection in which there is everlasting life right, for all who trust in him. That's at least some of what was meant by the greater things than these. And to think that those words extend even to us some 2,000 years later gives us more reason to praise our Lord. In 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, we read, Whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And again, I think that is part of that greater things than these on the other side of the cross and resurrection. Then in verse 51, Jesus makes reference to Genesis 28 and Jacob's vision of a ladder. This is to keep things simple. 
that was a figurative way to teach us that from there on out, heavenly things would be revealed in a new and brighter way. The perfect tense is used there. You shall see heaven open, which means it will be open continually. It will remain open. We have open access unto the throne of our God, right? We have that now. We will have it forever. And then lastly, just a few words about Jesus' title that he used for himself, which we find at the end of verse 31, the Son of Man. Over 80 times throughout the four Gospels, Jesus identified himself that way. However, the only Old Testament reference to that is found in Daniel 7, which is clearly a messianic passage. But, but, but wouldn't you think that Jesus would have used other titles for himself more often than that one, right? Other great Old Testament titles and so forth? Maybe, but understand that Christ likely used that title, Son of Man, because again, in part anyway, it carried with it his association with those that he came to save the souls of lost and dying men. And so even though we might think that it would have been better somehow for Jesus to have used the title Son of God, or as Nathaniel described him, King of Israel, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man because he knew what his mission was, to rescue us from our worst enemy, ourselves. Come and see were the words spoken by Philip to Nathaniel. And they were the words spoken by Jesus to his first disciples in verse 39. And those words are also spoken to us every day. Every day the Lord tells us, come and see him with eyes of faith as we behold him, most particularly where? In his word. Years ago there was an art connoisseur standing in an art museum and this guy was just staring at this painting for like 10 or 15 minutes. He wasn't taking his eyes off it. He just keeps staring at it. And some, some passerby saw him doing that, and he went up and he asked the guy, he said, he said, why are you staring at that painting for so long? To which the man replied, if you had my eyes, then you would be just as ravished as I am. And we, might too, we too might be asked why we are so intent on reading and studying and, and meditating on and hearing the word of God to which our answer should be, should be, if you had the eyes of faith to behold the same Savior I behold there, you too would be ravished with him. But then as we do read and study and hear and meditate on God's word, so to see our Savior, let's remember this, that we ought not to look for that in the law, which can only be found in the gospel, nor Look for that in the creature which can only be found in the creator. Nor look for that on earth which can only be found in heaven. Nor look for that in ourselves which can only be found in Christ. Good words from some saint of old. And of course we never look to ourselves which can only be found in Christ because in him is the answer for life here and life forever. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. <clears throat> Let's... Come again before our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that we hear in your word, the words that remind us to come and see. We thank you, Father, for the blessedness, the blessed promise that you give to your own, that it is, it is a blessing. It's a, it's a great grace and joy to our hearts and minds that 
that we can see with eyes of faith as we open your word, that we can see you for who you are. We can see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can see you in your fullness. Father, we long for that day when when faith will be sight, but as we have been planted here for now, we ask God that we would pick up your word, that we would read it and study it and meditate upon it. Thanking you, Father, that you reveal yourself in your word. May we not, as we just heard, uh, try to find in the law what is only found in the gospel. May we not look in ourselves for that which is only found in Christ. May we be wise in our understanding and our discernment of your truth. We ask, Father, that we'd not be forgetful hearers, that we'd be effectual doers of your word, that we would realize the privilege we've been given to have your word at this time and this place in history, to have it in our hands, to have multiple copies of it, to have it digitally and however else it is. We can listen to it and so forth. May we not be negligent of that great grace that you have given to us. But then too, as we open your word, may we see Christ. May we be ravished with his love. Father, though we may, are, though we may be weak, so much weaker than we are, we thank you that you use us anyway. We ask that you would use us throughout the course of this week to be light and salt of the gospel in the lives of our loved ones, the lives of our co-workers or whatever else it may be, the lives even of strangers. We who have the truth would be testimonies of it. We ask this all again in Jesus' name.